Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders in our church. And I would like to welcome you to our church. For many of you, I welcome you back to church once again. And I'm really glad that you're here. And for, for others of you, I welcome you here for the first time. I'm really glad that you're here. But what is it that I am welcoming you to? What is this thing that we call church? The church. What does it mean to be a church? And how do we make sure we're doing this church thing right? You may have heard before that the church is not the, the building that we find ourselves within right now, but it's the people who meet within it. The people are the church. And that is absolutely right. But what are those people supposed to do? What makes them a church and how do they do it well? This is what we've been studying, what we've been teaching for the last six months. And it's my job this morning to wrap it all up for you and to remind you of the big picture of what we've seen. We've now studied four short letters by the Apostle Paul. He was a first century Christian missionary to the non-Jewish peoples of the Roman Empire. And he wrote quite a few letters that are now a part of, of the Bible. And we looked at two of his earliest letters, First and Second Thessalonians. And then we studied two of his latest letters, First and Second Timothy. And we've had great times, much fun all along the way. But, but what was it all for? What should we learn from these collected writings of one of the most influential thinkers to ever have lived? Let me pray for us, and then we will dig in to uh, some key verses from these four letters as I try to, to tie it all together. Let's pray once again. Our Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are the Lord, you are our master, and we pray that you would grant us insight and understanding into these words that you have spoken, that you have inspired through your servant, Paul. Please help us now as we seek to understand how to honor you as a church, how to live out our calling as a body of your people on this earth. I pray you would help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me share some of what was going on in, in Paul's life as he wrote these letters, and, and at least how they, it came through in the letters, that Paul's first letters, as we looked at First and Second Thessalonians, they began quite idealistically. He was early in his ministry. He was excited about what God was, could do in the church and what, what could happen with these people. And then we saw his last letters, First and Second Timothy, they ended with quite a bit of sorrow and discouragement after he had been beat down for many years. But all throughout, from beginning to end, Paul had a single message to proclaim. And we saw that message never changed from his early letters to his late letters. That message drove his initial idealisms, and that message supported him in his his life-ending discouragement. And though his circumstances changed and his thinking 
developed over time as he got greater clarity on certain things. And though people came and went out of his life, this message never changed. The message about Jesus, who is the one appointed by God to save the world. Jesus himself, who was God, he always existed as God and with God, yet he took on flesh and he became a man. He appeared on earth as a man. He was truly born and decked out in flesh and blood, just like us. He did everything that his father had assigned him to do. And then he died for us in our place. He suffered for us what we deserve, the penalty of our sins. And he did that so that he could bring us back to God. And then he rose from the dead to prove that he was who he said he was all along. And now he has ascended into heaven and he now sits at God's right hand, reigning as king of the world until the last day when he will come back once again. And when he comes back, it will not be to save sinners, but it will be to eliminate all wickedness once and for all and to make everything new. Now, Paul, who was writing these things, he saw this message about Jesus and what he has done. That message was the inspiration for the church's day-to-day life. And Paul saw this message as his only lifeline when he had lost everything else in his last days. And so this message has come down to us from Paul to Timothy to those that Timothy was ministering to and those that they were ministering to and those that they were ministering to one generation after another generation. It has come down to us even today, and we still proclaim this same message today with all of our being. Friends, we have no other hope but this, that God our Father loves us and cares for us, not because of anything we have done, because we could never make him happy. But he loves us and cares for us because of what his son, Jesus Christ, has done on our behalf. Now that's the idea. How does this idea play out for Paul from letter to letter? Let me walk through for you Paul's four letters that we've studied so that I can tie them together for you. First, In 1 Thessalonians, we saw that the life of the church is a life of faith, hope, and love. That was the key idea of 1 Thessalonians. Let me read to you some of the key verses from that letter. Early in the letter, as Paul makes his greeting to this church, in 1 Thessalonians 1, chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers beloved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel, our message, our good news came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit 
and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So he introduces his letter this way, saying that the thing we give thanks for is your faith and your love and your hope. And this is proof for us that he's chosen to you, chosen you, and you believed this message about Jesus Christ. And it's now working itself out in you through faith to make you people of faith and love and hope. And then he ends the letter very similarly in chapter 5, verses 8 to 11. He says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, in other words, whether we're alive when he comes back or whether we're dead before he comes back, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So beginning to end in this letter, this first letter of Paul's, he says the life of the church, when you believe this message about Jesus and who he is, you become a community that's characterized by faith, by love, and by hope. These are three things that drive what you do. Let me illustrate with the Olympics going on right now. You, you may not even be aware that the, the modern Olympics were founded in the early 20th century on three virtues. The virtues of excellence, friendship, and respect. And it was a, a Frenchman, I believe, who started the Olympic movement. And, and he was very strong about these movements. And we need to promote these three values in the world. Excellence, friendship, and respect. So let's do this international athletic competition to promote these things. And you don't hear these things very much in the promotional materials for the Olympics anymore. But uh, as, as I, I dig, I, I do find them in there at places. But just as the Olympics were founded on those three virtues, so the church of Jesus Christ was founded on the values of faith and love and hope. And we must not drift from these things. These must always characterize us. How does this apply for us? This, the fact that this should characterize our community life, faith, love, and hope, this is the reason that the elders set our goal for 2018, to align our pastoral care for the members of the church. We want everything in the church to be more cohesive, more connected, fitting together as one body to this, these ends, because we want every person here to grow in believing the truth about Jesus. We're going to be characterized by our faith in the truth about Jesus. And we want each other to better love God and to love one another more deeply. And we do all this that we might have hope for the future, even though we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We need to be characterized. We want to be characterized more effectively by faith, love, and hope. There's Paul's first letter where he starts out. We move out, we move on to his second letter, 2 Thessalonians, where the key idea in that letter, the main point that we, we preached as we taught through it is that faith in Christ's love rejuvenates hope 
for those who have lost it. Because a critical thing in Second Thessalonians was that just a few months have gone by since Paul wrote his first letter to this church, these people in the city of Thessalonica. And they have been undergoing severe persecution to the point where they've lost hope. And he wrote them this second letter to help them re- regenerate, recover their hope. And they do that by remembering their faith and love. Faith in Christ's love rejuvenates their hope. And this is summarized in the letter in chapter 2, where Paul hits his on his main idea in verses 16 and 17 in his prayer. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. He's trying to give them comfort in the midst of all the suffering and affliction they've been enduring. And he wants them to know the day is coming when Jesus will come back and he will destroy those who are attacking you. He will destroy those who are attacking him. And he will establish his kingdom and you will receive eternal comfort and good hope with him. And so you have nothing to be afraid of in this world. Whatever you go through, you have nothing to be afraid of. And as you believe the truth about Jesus, you have every reason to hope for the best for the future. Let me illustrate this hope, uh, what it means to recover hope, the way Paul tries to help them do it. That recovering hope, it's not like replenishing an empty fruit basket where you just need to go and buy some more of it and bring it home. You can't just get it easily at the store. That's not what recovering hope is like. The way Paul, through this, that letter of Second Thessalonians, the way he went about trying to help them recover their hope was more similar to digging your car out of a snowbank. Like you're having a very bad day. Okay? And you can't just go to the store and buy more fruit, buy more hope to put in the basket. No, what you need is you need help to get yourself back in the right place. And then if you do get the car out, you need to be really, you're going to drive much more carefully than you did before that until you get back home and hope returns for you only as you get yourself moving in the same direction once again. In other words, what do I mean by this analogy? When you feel like you have lost hope, First, you need to realign yourself with the true faith. You need to believe the truth about the message about Jesus. And you plant yourself firmly in Christ's love for you. And then hope will sprout, bud, and blossom in your life as you get yourself going in the right direction. Now, it's amazing that this is how Paul counsels the Thessalonians to regain hope. Because by the time Paul gets to his last letter, he's in a place where he needs to regain some hope. And he does this exact same, he follows this exact same process. He struggles with losing hope. And so he reminds himself of what is true about Jesus. And he, he, he knows all about the love of Christ and he's preaching that. And that actually gives his last letter, which could be even more depressing than it is. It gives it much more hope than we might otherwise expect for a man who's about to be executed on false charges. 
How does this apply? If you struggle to maintain your hope in the world around you, you're actually in pretty good company. That doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. That's actually pretty normal to struggle with hopelessness. And so what do you do? You remember Jesus' love, that he died and your acceptance with God has nothing to do with you or your hopefulness or your strength or your obedience. You believe this to be true and you let his grace inspire you as you remember his love and you believe it and you have faith that these things are true. Then his grace will inspire you with eternal comfort and good hope, as Paul said in Second Thessalonians 2. So, so much for Paul's early career. Let's now jump to the end of his career. This is Paul beginning to end. There's the beginning. Now we jump to the end, to his last two, two uh, maybe not necessarily his very last two letters, but, but two of the last ones. Starting with 1 Timothy, the first letter he wrote to his, his student that he was training up, Timothy. And the main point of 1 Timothy, as we preached it, through it was that the household of God must behave in accordance with the message about Jesus. The household of God must behave in accordance with the message about Jesus. And we saw this right in the middle of the letter in 1 Timothy 3 where Paul summarizes this for us. Verses 14 to 16, he he tells Timothy why he's writing, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And and there, that last verse, he summarizes once again the message about who Jesus is and what he has done. And, And the church is meant to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. The, the church exists to support this truth. Jesus was, he came in the flesh and he was vindicated by the spirit in his resurrection. He was seen by the angels. He was proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We exist for this message. We uphold this at all times. And in light of that message, this letter was written to help you know how one ought to behave. How do you behave in a way that upholds this message in everything you do? Now, let me, let me illustrate. All households operate under a series of ground rules, right? Sometimes they're explicit and sometimes they're not. You have to learn them just because you made someone really angry and you learn not to do that again. They might be stated, they might be unstated, but all households operate under a series of ground rules. For example, I know of one household in our church, one family, who has rules like, you may never hit your mother. That is a capital offense. Bedtime is 8 o'clock. And I can't believe someone would do something like this. 
but those who talk with food in their mouths must do five push-ups. Or anyone who wishes to sing a song must first stand on a chair. Would you believe some ridiculous family has rules like that in their house? I don't know who that is. Children, have you ever heard of a family that does that kind of thing? Yeah. So, God's household, however, he doesn't have silly rules. God's household has one simple ground rule, which is this. Make Jesus visible to the world. That is the ground rule of God's household that we saw in 1 Timothy. Make Jesus visible to the world. And so everything we do has that purpose. How does this apply? Well, here in our church, programs and procedures and even people will come and go. Leaders will come and go. Projects will come and go. This building has come. Someday it will probably go. These chairs are pretty fantastic chairs. They're really comfortable, aren't they? But someday these chairs, too, will probably go. But in everything, though all these things come and go, in everything we do, in everything we undertake, please ask this question. How can we make the message about Jesus more visible? For example, Jesus came as a servant to serve all, to give them life. And so the elders have decided as a part of our goal this year, we really need to establish the office of deacon. Deacon just is a fancy word that means servant. We want to establish the office of deacon so we can better serve the members of the church and our visitors and people that we are relating to. Because Jesus was a servant, we need to make him more visible. So we need to get our act together at being more organized, at better having more efficient and better service of people taking care of needs. As another example, the worship team up here who leads us in music, they select songs. As they select songs, their concern, I believe, is not necessarily with fitting a certain musical style just to please a certain sector of the congregation. And we're not going to stick to things. We try different things. We try different instruments. We try different kinds of songs. We do some, some older hymns. We do some newer things. We uh, do a bunch of different things. But, but the concern is not with just one type of music. The concern is with how can we most clearly proclaim the message about Jesus through the songs we sing. That's number one. And so as we think through everything else we do, from handing out bulletins to setting out snacks to teaching Sunday school to taking out the trash, what will you do? How will what you do help others to see Jesus and his sacrificial love for others? This is what we're about. This is what we must be about. And then we move on to Paul's final letter in 2 Timothy. And the main point of 2 Timothy as we preach through that letter is that the message about Jesus 
is a sacred deposit we must guard to the end. So you see, when Paul was on death row, when he was about to be executed for preaching this message, and he had one last letter to write, one last message to proclaim, it was this. Don't let go of this message. This message is everything. Because without it, how can people know God? This is a sacred deposit entrusted to you by God, and we must guard it, guard the purity of this message to the end. We see this in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. At verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And we see it in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see right there, he's telling him, go back to the message. Go back to the grace, how you can't deserve this. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then at the end of the letter, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. When Paul wants to make a statement, he knows how to make it big and get your attention. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Have I got your attention? Here is the charge, the one thing you must do. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll, they'll find people who tell them what they want to hear. And they will turn away from listening to the truth. And they will wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And so, friends, when we talk about the gospel, this message of Jesus Christ that we call the gospel, the gospel is not a style of music. Let's bring out the gospel music. And the Gospel, it is not a quaint term for our manner of preaching. Good old gospel preaching. No, friends, the gospel, the message about Jesus is the heart that pumps the lifeblood through the veins of this church. The gospel is the breaker box that powers the receptacles of this electrified community. Children, the gospel... This message about Jesus, it is not just your Sunday school lesson, but the gospel is also the snack break that gets you through the Sunday school lesson. For the younger digital generation here, the gospel is the CPU, the RAM, the monitor, and the keyboard for this digital generation. And I say to all of you, the gospel is not only the spiritual beef, but it is also the utter 
the milk, all four stomachs, and the rumen of this blessed bovine we call Grace Fellowship Church. How does this apply? If you're here today and you consider yourself a Christian, please know that though many things will change in our church over the years, one thing must never change. And I might not be an elder and a preacher always. More of you may need to step up as we move into the next generation. And please remember, one thing must never change. Our commitment to the only message that inspires our faith, love, and hope. This must never change. And if you're here today and you don't consider yourself a Christian, please know this, that though we are not perfect people, and every Christian church is filled and will always be filled with widespread hypocrisy, because we preach a message that we can't deserve God's favor. We are not great people. Though these things are true, we stand for a message that doesn't depend on us, but it depends on Jesus, our hope. Other religions tend to be about what you do, whether you are good enough, whether you have done enough righteous good activities to please God and hope that your good outweighs your bad. But Christianity is different from every other religion in this way. Christianity says that we can never do enough good to please God. But that's okay, because Jesus did it for us. That's our hope. Jesus did it, and Jesus earned God's favor for us. Our hope cannot even be in our ability Friends, to stand strong for this message. You see, though, though we must stand for this message and this message must never change, this message of who Jesus is and what he has done, this must never change. But our hope is not in the fact that we don't let that message change. You see how easy it can be even to shift our attention off the message, off of Jesus himself, onto ourselves as we guard the message? Over the last few weeks, I've had a few extraordinarily difficult things happen to me. Let me tell you about one of them that inspired a metaphor I used earlier in this sermon. During our last snowstorm, I was driving my minivan with four of my children, and we slid into a ditch, and our van was almost at a 45-degree angle. It was, it was frightening. It was one of the most scary things that I've experienced that we've experienced. Uh, is, is this car going to tip over? Is it going to roll? Uh, it infused us all with massive amounts of adrenaline. The most distressing thing for me about that situation was not the stress and pain of digging out the van or caring for my children through the process of digging out the van, though that was all quite distressing. What actually has caused me much greater long-term distress 
is that long after the fact of when this happened, looking back on it, I realized that the gospel of Jesus Christ was one of the furthest things from my mind. It's one of the furthest things from my mind. And this realization filled me with shame and discouragement. Because when my children were starting to get really nervous, how easy would it have been for me to say, hey, let's just pray. God is with us. Jesus died for us. Let me direct your attention back to Jesus and my own attention. I never did that. It was furthest from my mind. It was just, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. What are we going to do here? And later I, I asked my children to, to uh, forgive me for that. I should have had thought more about Jesus. Here I am, the guy who's preaching this message time and time again. And I'm asking you all to guard it and to live by it and to not let it go. And, and I'm asking you to let faith in this message of Christ's love to fuel your hope when you suffer. And I can't even do it myself. Our hope is not in our ability to guard this message. And so I invite all of you to join me, to join the elders, to join our membership in proclaiming this message. Join us in soaking it up, swimming in it, and making it our purpose and our mission. Because this message is not only what makes us strong in our times of success, but it's also what bolsters us in our times of despair and weakness. May this message make us into people who are more like our master, Jesus. And may this message work through us to win many more people to Jesus here in State College and beyond. Now notice how these four letters fit together. If I go backwards, sort of. We guard this precious message. As number four, so that we can live according to it. Number three, when we live according to it, that makes us people of faith, love, and hope. Number one, and our guarding that message then puts us in a position to help those who stray, who lose, or struggle with one or another of those three virtues. The message is at the heart of it. And may the Lord Jesus bless this study we've undertaken of these words of his so that we may always honor him in our church life, in our organization, and in our community. Now, where are we going next? Now that we've finished Paul beginning to end these four letters. We, as we preach, we like to preach through books of the Bible, and we go, we, we like, usually like to go back and forth between Old and New Testament to give you all a steady diet of God's word and a variety. And we like to mix up the genres that we're preaching. Um, so that we you get a really good sampling. So we're going to go back to the Old Testament after this and hit a genre that we haven't preached in a very, very long time in this church, which is the prophets. And so we're actually planning uh, a study in the prophet Isaiah to go through that, one of the most important prophets, because he's uh, the, the, the second most quoted book in the New Testament, where the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. But we're not going to get to Isaiah for a little while. That's going to be later in the spring. First, we're going to do some short things. The next few weeks, we're going to, uh, we had a five-week opening. We didn't want to start Isaiah yet. So 
we wanted to, to hit something that would be intensely practical. So we're going to do a five, short five-week series on some topics from Proverbs to just talk about some really specific things in our church life. And then we'll have Easter and then a, a few weeks of a city church sermon series on prayer. So that's what you can expect coming your way. If you want to start reading Proverbs uh, to prepare for the next few weeks, you are invited to do so. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you for being clear with us about what you want us to believe and to do. And Lord, please help us to live by this rule to make Jesus more visible in everything we do. Thank you for sending Jesus to die so that we could know you. Lord, if he didn't die, we could never be made right with you. And if he didn't rise from the dead, we would never know if he really was who he said he was. Help us to trust you and love you and to guard this message to the end that it might drive our church life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.